Welcome back to Calvary Life. This is our weekly podcast from Calvary Baptist Church where we discuss issues that we think are important, necessary um, for the health and well-being of the members of our church, but also for the health and well-being of Christians in general. I'm Paul Thompson. I'm Dan Tinkersley. Today, Dan, we're going to tackle or try to tackle a difficult subject, the subject of heresy. Now, this is one that we hear kicked around an awful lot these days. You don't have to spend very much time on Twitter or social media, really anywhere, and not see the word heresy bandied about. And so what is a very lengthy subject, really, we're going to at least scratch the surface of and hopefully come up with some clarity of how we understand this and how we approach it as believers. So, Pastor Paul, I thought it'd be fun to ask you right out of the gate. Have you ever been labeled a heretic? And if so, why? <laughs> it's, you know what? I guess, let me qualify the answer. Sort of. So, I have been accused of teaching something that is heresy. Now, the person who said it, I think in their minds, maybe was making a distinction that I would not make between teaching a heresy and being a heretic. So, that might be a question that you're going to toss my way a little bit later. I can go ahead and preemptively answer that. By very definition, a teacher of heresies, which we'll define in a little bit, is a heretic. So to answer your question, um, I would say yes. Yes, I was. I was accused of teaching heresy because what I taught, my views of eschatology, doctrine of the end times, did not align with this person's. So when we were going through a study on the book of Revelation, and I was laying out what are some potentially viable views on the end times eschatology, I shared why I was not a dispensationalist, which I would assume is probably the majority opinion of, of most of, of contemporary Christians today, at least Baptist Christians. So I said, this is why I'm not. Here's here's the scriptures, et cetera, et cetera. And then immediately it got back to me several days later, that's heresy um, because... We all know that blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, I guess I have. So I, I had to address that. I'm a little sensitive to that, to the misuse of the term. So in my extensive research for this podcast, I came across an article, and the headline says, Ligonier State of Theology Reveals 84% of Christians are Heretics. So every few years, uh, Ligonier, along with Lifeway, basically do an assessment of the state of evangelical theology and based on this headline, 84% of us are heretics, which tells me that maybe we're using that term too loosely. Um, but that kind of leads to the, the essential question of this discussion, that is, what is heresy? Okay, let me address two parts of that, of what you said uh, before I delve into that. One, uh, Dan, don't make people think we do extensive research. Two, um, you know, that 84% when, when I... Upon hearing that number, my first thought is, okay, we're not using the term the same way. But if I really, you know, if we really delve into it, their number might be fairly close because I'm not sure how many modern Christians really understand the fundamentals of the gospel anymore. Um, we have so deviated in so many ways from the historic truths and the old creeds and confessions that maybe their number is, is not as far-fetched as we think. Um, but I think we do need to define the terms here a little bit. And Dan, in my extensive preparation for today, one of the things I, I discovered is that people do define the word heresy differently. So I'm not sure if we could settle on exactly one, but let me give you a few that I think are helpful for me. Okay. Al Mohler's written a good bit on this subject, 
And his basic statement is this, heresy is a denial or deviation from a doctrine central and essential to Christianity. Central and essential. And kind of the, the follow-up to that is uh, heresies aren't just false teachings or even false doctrines held. They're false doctrines that if they're left uncorrected, Christianity cannot survive. They so, they so go to the core of what it means to be a Christian, how we are saved, how we relate to God, who God is, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, you know, those critical issues. Um, one guy we've been reading, one of his books in, in staff, and he's written a, a very helpful systematic theology, is Michael Horton. And Michael Horton defines heresy as this. This was not in one of his writings, but actually in an interview. He says, heresy is any teaching that directly contradicts the clear and direct witness of the Scriptures on a point of salvific importance. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, that's critical, too. When we talk about heresies, I think we need to keep it under, in the bounds of, does it affect our ability to rightly know, relate to, be redeemed by by God. So he uses kind of a funny example. He says, so in other words, there may be some teachings that are strange, like Benny Hinn's suggestion that before the fall, I don't know if you knew this, Dan, but Benny Hinn suggested that Adam could fly okay. and that he could remain for hours underwater before the fall. Interesting. Heresy or insanity? You you decide. But you know, there are too many people, I think, like to the original question you asked me, if I have I ever been accused? that heresy is anything that doesn't agree with their own interpretation of Scripture. Mm -hmm. So I think as we talk about this subject, you know, there are a couple of things we need, to, we need to recognize. Biblically speaking, um, every truth is important. We don't, we don't say there are some truths that don't matter. We just don't care. We don't care if we get it right or not. Part of my job, part of your job, part of the responsibility of every Christian is to discover what's true, what does the Bible say, what do I believe? Make decisions. We have to make decisions about what we believe. But we also recognize that every truth is important, but not every truth is equally important. And the, and the reason I say that, you know, those are the words of the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 15, he said, let me remind you of things, let me remind you of that which is of first importance. And you know what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. The gospel. And, and specifically, he lays out these components of the gospel. First importance, what I also received, Christ died for our sins, Christ was buried, Christ was raised, Christ appeared. I mean, these are essential. So, you know, if, if you're asking me, can someone be a Christian who doesn't believe that Jesus was sinless? I say, no. No, that's a heresy of the first order. Can you be a Christian and not believe in an actual or physical resurrection? No, you cannot. Can you be a Christian and, and not believe that Jesus ascended and will return? No, you, you can't. Those are outside the bounds of Christianity, and that, that would be a heresy to us. And also know that even in other teachings, Jesus said there are weightier matters of the law. There are some things that are, are more significant. You know, He told the, the scribes and Pharisees, Matthew 23, 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe your mint and your dill and your cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And then he says, you should have done them all, you know, you should have done the most important ones while not neglecting the least important ones. They're all important, but some are more important than others. So I think, you know, our challenge, Dan, as we look at this, and we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, two extremes. There's a tendency, a growing tendency, I think, in modern Christianity to not be willing to recognize anything as heresy. 
You know, we live in such an emotional age. Um, we judge things, their worth, even their truthfulness based on how they make us feel, what we like about them. And for some reason, we think that tolerance has become the um, overarching virtue. And so we're not willing to boldly say and biblically say, that's wrong. That's outside the bounds. So on the one hand, there's an extreme of not um, recognizing anything as heresy and acknowledging the real danger of it. You know, we've been talking about that in Second Timothy. And then the other danger would be labeling everything I disagree with as a heresy. That's a heresy. That's a heresy. That's a heresy. So, you know, we can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, Dr. Robert Godfrey kind of summarized the definitions you presented. He said, some people use the word heresy simply to mean any error in theology, but classically the word heresy was used to describe those theological errors so serious that it would deprive one of salvation. So it's those first-tier issues that would be um, considered in the realm of, of heresy. And so I think it's better to use the word heresy in that sense. Um, so with that definition, you mentioned some examples, but what are some other examples of, of heresy? I think heresy would be denying the Trinity, the nature of God. I think heresy would be denying the means of salvation, like justification by faith alone, as if there were other means. You know, that, was the, that was the great heresy in the book of Galatians that, that Paul addressed when he said, if even angels from heaven should give you another gospel, let him be anathema, let him be cursed, because they were suggesting you know, the challenge that there's anything to be added to the work of Christ, justification by faith alone and Christ alone, by His grace alone. So justification, the means of salvation um, would be, I think, the, the nature of Christ, fully man, fully God, denying that is a heresy. Um, those are some of the, some of the ones just, just off, the, off the cuff. Denying that Jesus is less than God or the Holy Spirit is less than God. Those, those would fall into that realm of, of what heresies are. What, are there some others that you can think of that well, you would identify off the cuff? It seems like so many heresies begin by people asking the right questions, but then coming to the wrong answers. And if you look back through church history, you mentioned the divinity and humanity of Christ. Well, um, humans sometimes are not good at dealing with tensions or paradoxes. And so what happens is, well, the Bible says Jesus is God. That means he can't be man. Well, that yeah. leads to heresy. Yeah, that's a great and so, point. And that affects soteriology, too. I mean, that's a debate we have all the time. And, mm-hmm. and so, yes, yeah, so, so there's apparent contradictions, which are really paradoxes, which are held mm-hmm. simultaneously, which we struggle with. Yeah, that's a, that, that's a huge point. And, you know, the early church was very quick to jump on those things which were heresies. And the idea of heresy really by its definition, you know, just the linguistically, heresy is to choose something outside of. It is to come up with something on your own contrary to. And so, you know, literally heresy means a choice. Uh, I've made this choice to deviate from what's right or what's true. But these sort of choices of deviation, again, are of the highest order. So if you're asking me, which I'm hoping you won't kind of, but if you ask me, okay, I'm going to give you some names, heretic or not heretic, really the question is going to be, have they deviated from things on the highest order. Um, who is God? How do we know Him? How do we relate to Him? How are we saved by Him? Uh, those things are, are probably the most the most critical things. So as you look at your Presbyterian or Methodist brothers and sisters, I don't think we would call them heretics, but we do have strong disagreements. So what are some examples of, of some things that maybe are not heresy, but are things that we can disagree on? Again, referencing uh, someone who's 
been very helpful to me in this subject is Al Mohler. He kind of coined the phrase, I think, of theological triage. Um, the idea that you have to order things properly, not everything is is of the same weight and worth. You know, it's kind of like what Paul said in First Corinthians 15, or what Jesus said in Matthew uh, 23, 23. Uh, you know, to your point, I think there are first order sort of things, which again, to deviate from those, that that's heresy. So, these are the things that maybe we would say we hold with a closed fist. These are non-negotiables for us. We're, we're not ever moving on this. You know, fundamentals of the Christian faith. First order sort of things, again, who is Christ, what is the Trinity, how are we saved, all of those things. Those things which we would say either make someone a Christian or keep them from becoming a Christian, or as, as Moeller said, to lose these things, ultimately the church can't survive it, the mission of the church won't continue. You know, that's first order things. But you mentioned like to our Methodist friends, and and I'll, I'll go more than that, um, brothers and sisters, you know, our brothers and sisters who are Methodist and Presbyterian and different Pentecostal varieties, et cetera. You know, we're talking about um, typically second-order doctrines. We're not, I would not say to my Presbyterian friend, man, because you baptize infants, I don't think you're a Christian. I think you're a heretic. I would say, biblically speaking, here's why we don't baptize infants. It's not just our preference. It's not just our history. It's not just our creeds. Biblically speaking, here's why we don't. This is our interpretation of it. Yet at the same time, I can recognize for my Presbyterian brothers and sisters, for them, their understanding of biblical covenant affects their understanding of baptism, and it goes right to the core of that, and therefore they baptize infants based on the understanding of Scripture and covenant. So, you know, I get that, but that does create a boundary between us because that's an issue, Dan, that ultimately we just, as a church, we have to decide. So are we brothers and sisters in Christ? Yes. Will we spend forever and eternity together? Yes. Will we both get our doctrines and theologies put in right order and corrected in heaven? For sure. But now on earth, while we decide how we're going to worship and how we're going to carry out our, our relationships together as a church, you have to choose. Either you baptize infants or you don't. Um, so that becomes, that becomes a second-order issue. And you know people may be very strident about that, but you know, I have no, I have no problem recognizing the the faith and the orthodox faith of my Methodist friends and my Presbyterian friends, and I wouldn't have a problem sharing the pulpit with them, as long as we understood. Listen, let's swap pulpits. I'm not going to go over there and preach on the evils of infant baptism, and you don't come over here and and speak on the you know whatever that, that you disagree with us, uh, you know that sort of thing. So, um, those are just again, that's those are things that shape what a denomination is. Okay. So going back to my extensive research, I found an article from Christianity Today, came out last year, title is Top Five Heresies Among American Evangelicals. Okay. That would include us, Presbyterians, Methodists, you know, and all those. And so would you like to know what they are? All right, hold up on that. So here's my first thought. Okay, and I haven't, I haven't done the research, so I don't know the article, but my first thought is this. Okay, I think in a sense... If I were editing that article for Christianity Today, I would say you've got a potential conflict of terms here, contradiction of terms. So you said five heresies of evangelicals. Now, by evangelicals, I would traditionally mean those who believe in salvation through Christ alone, believe in the authority of Scripture, etc. So, and maybe I'm wrong, and my, my assumption would be if you're evangelical, you are Christian, but I get what they're saying. In evangelical churches, these heresies might exist. So that being said, yeah, I definitely want to hear what the five are. So I'll just stand where you can feel free to comment on them if you like to. So number one, Jesus is not the only way to God. Oh, yeah. So that's, yes, okay. 
Yeah, so they're right. That is a heresy. You know, that showed up in that um, League of the Year. It was actually the same survey they used to get these okay. top five heresies. Man, you remember when we did this at Calvary? I wish I had the stats in front of me. I don't. We did Calvary. We asked Calvary folks to go through it. And we had a viable statistical sample because we had well over 100 people that took it. We even had Our percentage was very low, but we have some people that affirmed that, that Jesus is not the only way. Number two, Jesus was created by God. Yes, we saw a higher percentage of that, still low, but at least double the number of those who um, said that Jesus is not the only way. Absolutely a heresy. Absolutely a heresy. Jesus has, is eternally existent alongside the Father. Number three, Jesus is not God. Wow. Yeah. These, are, these really are heresies, okay? I stand corrected. Uh, their terminology is correct. If there are people in evangelical churches or people who call themselves Christians who hold that, those, those are heresies. And I want to get to another question as a result of that, so I'm going to write it down right here so I don't forget, but keep going. Okay. Number four, the Holy Spirit is not a personal being. Yeah, that, that also is a heretical teaching. And the early church councils address these things. Dan, let me put this plug in real quick, okay. and I know this will resonate with you. This is one of the reasons why we value those old church creeds and covenants. They're not a substitute for the Bible, but they are a tether to the rock that is Scripture. They, they tether us to the truth. The church long ago, Christians long ago, debated and fought vehemently over these issues and settled them correctly, biblically. Um, and we have those church creeds and covenants that address that. So yes, that's, that is another heresy. And number five, humans are not sinful by nature. Okay. That's, that's one I would put more into the, I'm not sure. That's wrong. Okay, that's a false teaching. To me, that's clearly a false teaching. That's not debatable. For my terminology, I would not put that in the category of heresy per se, though that belief could certainly lead you to heretical views of the gospel and salvation. Um, you know, when you think about people holding these positions, as you mentioned, and we have to think about how these people came to these positions and, and why people are in these positions. Like, I, I think of it this way. Like, when we're teaching in, in membership class for Calvary, and we're teaching part of our four-week membership class is teaching on our confession of faith, which we affirm the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. And one of the things I say, and Dan, I'm sure you say something similar when you're teaching the class, is some of this may be new to you. You may have never even considered these things. And we also want to make way for that person who's a brand new believer who is not saved by understanding and articulation of every historic church doctrine. Um, we understand that their salvation comes by faith alone and Christ alone, through grace alone. I mean, we get that. And so we're not saying you if you affirm all of these doctrines, then um, you know, then you can you can be a Christian. But what we do say is, at the very least coming in, your commitment is not is to not be contrary to these doctrines. And so, you know, we think about people who who have heretical beliefs, like those they talked about in in the local church. How did they get to that point? Um, you know, there may be some people who don't affirm a doctrine that we hold because they've never heard of it. They just don't know. I, if you ask them, do you believe in such and such, they wouldn't know what to say or they may, might deny it because they they've never heard of it. Others may deny a certain doctrine because they're ignorant of it. Um, they've never been taught properly. I, and I've encountered that over and over. They, someone will say, I, I hear this, not nearly as much as I used to, but used to hear it with some, some level of frequency. Well, I just don't believe in, in election. 
Well, biblically speaking, you cannot say as a Christian you don't believe in election because it's a biblical term. It's clearly there. The Word is there. What you have to decide as a Christian is what do you believe the Bible says about election? What does that mean? So sometimes that's just ignorance and misunderstanding. Now, it's much worse, okay? This is where you run into that area, like to that one. If you have people who have a correct understanding of the doctrine of original sin or uh, total depravity, they understand it, but they deny it. Now, that's a real issue. So does that make them a heretic, one who could not be a Christian? I don't think so. It certainly is a false teaching, and someone who espouses that false teaching, I think, is someone you mark and avoid. Um, but I don't know that it would mean that they could not be saved. And that's really kind of, the again, the, the fault line for me on what heresy is and isn't. Yeah, as a child, going back to what you said about ignorance, as a child, I assumed that God created Jesus like he created everything else. You know, Jesus was born. Typically, when you're born, that's the beginning of someone, right? Well, until I was taught properly about the preeminence, preexistence of Christ, um, I just was ignorant of the truth that God did not create Jesus, that he's eternal. And I think the same thing, maybe to a lesser degree, is true of the Trinity. A lot of people have just never explored it deeply or been taught well about it, or they've heard some poor analogies of it, or they've been exposed to uh, someone who just teaches falsely, like T.D. Jakes on the subject, who teaches modalism, that uh, the Trinity is totally a man-made concept and God just exists in different modes. But Mm -hmm. we know biblically that's, that's not the case. And again... We're not the first to have tread these waters. Um, our, our forebears did it and did it well and established a, a clear consensus and clearly wrote out a biblical conviction that we should hold to. That's called orthodoxy. So how should we as the church respond to heresy and or heretics? How to respond? Well... Let me let me back up a little bit on that. Um, in fact, I'll kind of come back around to to answering that exactly. How do we respond where there's clear heresy? I think we, if that is publicly taught, we respond publicly. Um, you know, that's kind of a misnomer. I think that people have. I see this sort of exchange sometimes on social media. Someone will have a heretical position that they've spoken, that they've written about, that they've posted. And, and by the way, um, I would consider Dan, if you preach a sermon at Calvary, that is not a private expression of your faith. That is a public statement. A pulpit is a is a public statement of what we believe. If the church posts our confession of faith, or this will, that's a public statement. That's for the consumption of anyone to see. And so we have to be able to defend that. So I think if there's a public statement, whether that's in your book or that's in a sermon that you've given or it's on a, a podcast or a blog or a tweet, then a public um, response is due. A public renunciation is due. And so you respond to that. I think about the Apostle Paul talking to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and he identifies the false teaching. He says, this is the false teaching, this is wrong, this is why. And I think the second part of that is you identify those false teachers. And so if they're among you, then they have to be put out. There's zero tolerance for heretics in the body of Christ. The body of Christ has to put them out, and you have to warn. You warn people, avoid those teachers, avoid that teaching. Um, 
And again, I think in, in a, we have to be able to triage those things which are first tier. I never got to the second tier, I mean to the third tier. You know, first tier we talked about those things which are direct threats to the gospel. Second tier things are, are important enough, they affect how we worship together, how we fellowship together, how we believe the church ought to be ordered, how we live as Christians. But there are third tier things too that are right or wrong, true or false. There is a right answer, by the way. You know, so I know I'm kind of talking in circles here, Dan, but coming back to the idea of eschatology where I was accused of being a heretic, when I say there are some viable positions, I, I think you know, if, if a lot of our folks listening realize how many of the teachers and theologians and pastors that they know and trust or admire or have read their books and, been, and had uh, good insight they drew from them or benefited from, they might be surprised at the different positions they held on eschatology. You know, R.C. Sproul does not hold the same position that John MacArthur holds. David Jeremiah does not hold the same position that John Piper holds. I mean, and the list could just go on and on, at, you know, ad infinitum. And so for me to say in some teaching, these are viable views. I, I know people that I believe are godly and sincere and they're honest in their approach to Scripture who fall in the post-millennial category or the historic premillennial category or the dispensational category. Um, are the amillennial category. But here's the thing. Even as I say that, I know one of those is right. Okay? One of those is correct. They're not all correct because they differ. They don't make us not Christians or brothers and sisters. In fact, I don't think they should cause separation or conflict even if four of us sitting around the table in the same small group hold four different positions on that. We ought to be able to exchange those ideas and, and be able to still fellowship together, worship together, serve the Lord together. Um, but if all four of us hold four different positions, three of us are wrong. I get that. But you know what? I'm going to teach you what I think is right because I, I believe my position. I mean, if I, if I didn't believe it, I wouldn't teach it. I wouldn't say it. And if I thought you were right, I'd believe your position. So we hold that with some humility. So you're asking what we do with it. Those things which are obviously contrary to Scripture and contrary to the historic teachings of the church. I don't want to sound Roman Catholic here. I'm not talking about the authority of the Catholic Church. But we would be... We would be arrogant, at the least, to ignore the creeds and confessions that have helped define these terms for us, that have helped define who is Jesus, helped define for us issues like sin and original sin, and, and so many different things that have been addressed. So we need, to, we need to acknowledge those with humility. We need to acknowledge those who've gone before us. We don't need to be held captive to the tyranny of the immediate and the popular and the contemporary. We need to search the scriptures, and but those things which are clear heresies, we have nothing to do with. You know, you mentioned earlier uh, before we were recording. You know, in the Old Testament, they put to death false prophets and false teachers. In the New Testament, we're not commanded to put them to death, but we are commanded to put them out and have nothing to do with them. Um, then I think we we triage some other things. I think there are other things that might fall short of absolute heresy that I think are are. They're level two, but they're approaching level one. And so the closer you get in a level two issue to something that begins to really threaten the gospel, I think the sicker that makes a Christian who believes it. Um, and and I, 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 borrow that sort of, I borrow that sort of thinking from uh, another person who wrote on, on theological uh, triage. And I, I wrote his name down here, Dan. I had a piece of paper here. I'm trying to find a, I want to give credit where credit is due. Um, well, I'll find that in just a second. But again, using that same kind of same kind of idea of theological triage, we recognize that 
you know, some people, oh, Daniel Wallace, that's it. Daniel Wallace, professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. You know, on that second tier, these things that are essential for how we function. But again, some of those things start to get pretty close. So I don't think you could be a healthy Christian, for instance, and be in a church that's so full of bad teaching that maybe that pastor is a Christian. Um, let, me, let me give you an example. This will offend some people. I'm not, I'm not willing to say in the pulpit or on the podcast that Joel Osteen's not a Christian, that he's not going to be in heaven, in heaven. But he has so many egregious teachings that for me to be under his teaching or to be in his church, I think would seriously affect my ability to be a healthy Christian growing up in the fullness who is Christ. It would seriously impair my ability to be a Christian who rightly handles the word of truth. It would seriously impair my ability to, um, to be a disciple who's learned to obey Jesus in all things. You, you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I'm not willing to say that he's a ter- heretic, but at the same time, I might say he could be. And some of his teachings could certainly create such a slippery slope that it could lead people to heresy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, that would just be an example of how, how to respond. So I wouldn't be in his church. Um, I would, so I would guard myself. And you have to decide as a Christian which of these teachings are critical enough that they affect your understanding. I, you know, another teacher who may say some good things in sermons, and there may be some positives. I, I don't really track much of his messages. I've heard enough to say, no, I, that doesn't fit my understanding of grace, would be someone like Joseph Prince. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's false teaching enough of, to, a, to a significant enough degree that I could not sit under those messages, listen to those sermons, or be in that church because I think it compromises the very nature of law and grace and, and faithfulness to Christ and what Romans 6 requires of me to live as one who's dead to sin. So again, that would just be a couple of examples. Maybe those are obvious and, and egregious. But, um, but then sort of down the line, recognizing with some humility that none of us get it exactly right. And we do have to show some, some grace and, and preserve some unity and recognize that there may be, there may be some differences you know, among us. And all of those differences are not, are not heretical differences. You know, we have to have some humility. Yeah, we have to recognize that theologians, pastors, we, we never agree on every issue. I mean, almost never. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have to we have to affirm certain things. We affirm our faithfulness to Scripture. And like Daniel, you know, if you and I were having this conversation, or if it was a few other folks on our staff, our position, I think, would be this. You can tell me your thoughts on this. We may disagree on this issue, but we would agree on this principle. Scripture will be our guide, and we will study hard. We'll bring other things to bear that help us to see something we've missed, maybe like a commentary or an old creed or confession or a historical debate or the writings of another pastor, but Scripture will be our guide, and at the point we feel like we were wrong, we will change course. Mm-hmm. But that still doesn't mean that we won't always agree on our interpretations and things. Yeah, one of the questions I was going to pose is how we guard from heresy, and you nailed it. I mean, if you know the Word, you'll be less likely to drift into heresy. The same you said about creeds and confessions, these historical <clears throat> creeds and confessions um, represent orthodoxy. So if you realize you believe something that's contrary to Scripture or you know, a creed or confession, maybe you should question what it is you're, you're believing. I think maybe part of the problem is some people 
would wrongly assume that if you don't call everything you disagree with, everything, or even, let, let me take the personal opinion out of the side, aside, out of the equation, that you don't call everything that you believe the Bible is clear about that's wrong, you don't call that a heresy that you're soft on those things or you're soft on the truth. I don't think that's the case. I just think, I think we need to consider a third category. So orthodoxy is what we believe the Bible teaches and what the church has affirmed, which what the orthodox, what the biblical church has affirmed. And particularly for us, we might say there are some periods of time where the church deviated from orthodoxy. Certainly there were more than just cultural dark ages, there were spiritual dark ages. And, and we'll talk about that more in the month of October when we talk about the Reformation. But the Reformation was a response to the deviance deviancy from orthodoxy. But the early church in the first couple of centuries and then the return to orthodoxy marked by the Reformation return to sola scriptura. Um, but what the early church has, has agreed upon is orthodox. That's one category. Then we believe orthodoxy ought to equal what's biblically correct. And then heresy is the opposite of orthodoxy, specifically in those areas that pertain to salvation. But I think a third category is heterodoxy. And so when I say heterodoxy, I, you know, I'm talking about, um, you know, it's a, it's a third term. It's, it's, it's beliefs, opinions, convictions, if that would fit, outside of what we would consider acceptable or accepted doctrine. You know, it's, it's, I would say they're in error, and they're outside of, of orthodoxy, but they're not so erroneous that we would call them, we would call those who believe them to be heretics. And I can give you a couple examples of what I mean. You might be thinking of some already. Go ahead. Okay, so one we've talked about, um, John Stott. You guys at Calvary will hear me referencing Stott. You'll see quotes here and there. I think Stott has written um, one of the five. I don't know, maybe that's too subjective. But he's written a, a, an excellent commentary on Romans, on Acts. His commentaries on 1st, 2nd Timothy, pastoral epistles, I think are excellent. I think Stott, in a lot of ways, is really go-to. I mean, he's, he's a go-to solid theologian. And yet, Dan, there is one theological position that Stott, I think, maybe was evasive on for a period of, of his life and ministry as a theologian and a pastor, but in the latter years he was pretty open about, that we would say, that's heterodoxy. That's, that's not how we see the Scriptures. We don't believe that to be true. What is that? Annihilationism. So explain to our eager listening audience what we're talking about here. Uh, essentially, he believes that there's that hell is not eternal, that one day all people in hell will simply be annihilated and done with. I had a friend in seminary who held the same position, and we had some, some warm discussions about it. And you, know, you can certainly research and debate it. The issue with Stott, I think, ultimately is this. I think his, his position was... A, and I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing um, from some interviews that he gave, that one, he found the position just emotionally untenable, the eternal, you know, the eternal conscious torment. He found it emotionally untenable, and he found it, it, it was a struggle for him, and maybe a struggle for him in, in teaching it or conveying it. But he did ask the right question. He said, but ultimately it doesn't matter what I think about or how it makes me feel, but what does the Bible say? Unfortunately... From our perspective, he came up with a different answer to what the Bible says, and he believed that the Bible gave at least the possibility, if not taught outright, gave at least the possibility that hell was not eternal, that this was a, 
you know, it was an act of destruction. So again, would we say that Stott's not a Christian? Man, I, there's no way in the world I'd ever say that. Would I, am I going to stop using Stott on other sources? No, no, absolutely not. Do I agree with Stott, Stott on the eternal nature of hell? I don't. You ask about another one, um, William Barclay. Right. That's tougher because I've got some old commentaries. He's not a go-to for me, but that's not at, really out of preference as much as it is ignorance. Um, he just has not been a go-to for me commentary-wise. But I know that uh, Barclay was a universalist. Mm-hmm. So tell everybody what we're talking about here. Uh, he essentially believed that everyone will end up in heaven, which kind of undermines the the gospel and discipleship and everything else Jesus taught. <laughs> so this one is a real tough case study on on heresy. Is that a heretical teaching? I think it's a heretical teaching, not just a false teaching, because I think it undermines the message of the gospel. I think it undermines the work of Christ. I think it undermines the very words of Christ. And I think it undermines the mission of the church. And again, if I'm using the picture of heresy that Al Mohler gave, the church would not survive that doctrine. If that became the prevalent doctrine of the church, what we know, how we see, what we think of as the church would not continue under that. Um, but it does put us in a sticky situation because Barclay said a lot of really good things. I think mm-hmm. in the end he held a heretical position, a gospel-threatening position, a dishonoring to the work of Christ position, and a position that threatens the very mission of the church. Is he in heaven? We'll leave that one right there. <laughs> you can, you know, but again, it, it was a it was a false. But there are others. You know, I, I like C.S. Lewis. I read C.S. Lewis, and I find his reading just be fascinating to me. And and uh, you know, for you guys who want to debate this sort of stuff, I mean, there's certainly a debate. Maybe C.S. Lewis was more profound in his writings in Chronicles of Narnia than Tolkien was in Lord of the Rings. I mean, I, that's an aside. I mean, I, I like Lewis and I like reading Lewis, but Lewis did not hold all the positions that we would consider orthodox. They were heterodox. Um, he didn't. He didn't have the same version of understanding of interpretation. I mean, the theory of inspiration of Scripture that we have. Um, he didn't believe in literal creation as we do. Uh, he didn't believe in eternal salvation or eternal security, perseverance of the saints. Um, you know, there there's just a number of issues that we would say with with uh, Lewis. We wouldn't agree. He didn't believe in original sin. Didn't believe in total depravity. He never mentioned things like justification by faith. You asked me a question earlier, Dan. Can you be a heretic by things you don't say or teach? And I think the answer is maybe. You could be if you're avoiding those things because you don't believe them and you don't want the flack of being honest about what you don't believe. Um, I will tell you this. I appreciate the honesty of William Barclay, who was openly a universalist, more than I appreciate the relative dishonesty of Joel Osteen, who's not willing to say that people in India who don't believe in Jesus Christ, who've never heard of Christ, um, are going to be in heaven. So, I mean, tell us what you believe. I'd rather you... I'd rather you be straightforward and tell us what you believe and why. But uh, so that's you know that's a challenge too. So anyway, I, I, a point I want to make real quick, Dan, before we wrap up, and we've probably been doing this a while. I lost track. I didn't look at my watch, but I want to. I agree with Michael Horton in an interview he gave that we want to be careful to not slip in a, a salvation by correct, correct theology mentality. You know, we we want to be able to answer the Bible's question. What must I do to be saved? The same way the Bible does. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, we get that. But I also want to say I believe in his statement that faith in Jesus, transformation by the Spirit of God, will also ultimately transform what you believe and see about God. 
I think you can become a Christian and not hold all orthodox beliefs, not know them, be confused by them, um, misunderstand them, etc. Maybe even be opposed to them in the beginning, but that regenerating work of Christ, making you more and more like Christ, I think is going to affect not just your salvation, it's going to affect your it's going to affect your sanctification part of your salvation, not just the ultimate end, the culmination and glorification is going to affect the sanctification. So, I, you know, I think ultimately God is going to shape how we think and believe and, and act as well. Amen. Dan, you got anything else we need to say on this subject? There's so much more. I know maybe this just stirs up some questions. If you have them, email us. Um, one good way we can follow some up, follow up with some on the podcast, email us at podcast. That's plural at calvarydothan.com, and uh, we'll hit those. Um, I guess the last thing I want to say is we need to recognize that historically, when I say historically, in the Reformed tradition, when I say Reformed tradition, I'm not saying in the Calvinist tradition, I'm saying in the tradition of the Reformation, which again, Dan, this is a plug. We're going to talk about what the Reformation is and meant, and but all of us in the Reformed tradition, Methodist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, etc., came out of the Reformation, we've always been careful to distinguish some different zones, layers, levels between orthodoxy and outright heresy. So, you know, again, there are some things that are contrary to fundamental issues. Um, that's, you know, that's level one. And then there are some things that are, are not, as we talked about, level two, that we're going to disagree on. We're going to disagree with our Lutheran brothers and sisters on the nature of communion. Now, we believe solidly that we're right, and, and with biblical calls, not with just historical calls, but we will disagree there. We will disagree with our Presbyterian brothers and sisters about the nature of covenant and baptism, but we believe them to be co-laborers in Christ. And then there are those areas outside of fundamental issues and fundamental articles, which, again, are third-tier things. And, you know, Dan, if you want to continue to be a dispensationalist, that's fine. You can do that and be wrong, and... <laughs> Jesus will show you the area of your ways one day. I'll be fine with that. Okay. Yeah, I've exhausted my questions. I do want to read Second Peter 2 1. It says, There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So, just a reminder that we live in a day and age where Satan's goal is to deceive, to bring in heresies, and our goal is to contend for the gospel, uh, steward the gospel, be ambassadors of Christ. Thanks, and If I could give one quick plug before we go, if you go to our bookstore and want to dig deeper into this subject, we have a book from Ligonier Ministries entitled A Field Guide on False Teaching. And it covers heresies such as the prosperity gospel. Uh, it covers Mormonism, Christian science, Jehovah's Witness, and other false religions. So if you want to dig deeper into this topic, go to our bookstore and get you a copy. As always, we are for God, we are for Dothan, and we are for the world. 